0: I always feel that if you create something great, something that comes from your heart, something that's personal, meaningful to you, when you make something of quality like that, it will make money, but it's gotta come from the right place. It's gotta come from your heart first.
1: It seems to be a reoccurring theme for us lately as story to create from the heart. It came up in conversations from the stage, repeatedly, as Story 2017. It came up again in conversation with Brad Montague on our virtual pep talk, including in the highlights of last week's episode, and again with this week's incredible guest. But it's not all we talked about. We discussed the storytelling secrets that make Pixar's films so highly successful, the universal things that all great stories have in common, and so much more. I am Harris III, and you're listening to The Story Podcast. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. Where is your curiosity pointing? What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work, and we don't get up until Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway.
0: Rise up, artists. Your canvas is the consciousness of this generation. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers.
1: At Story 2017, I had the honor of sitting down backstage for a conversation with matthew lunn
0: i am a storyteller <laughs> i mean that's really what i am but i would you know i think usually i i go to i'm a writer i'm i i'm someone who creates stories matthew
1: is indeed a storyteller he's a 20-year pixar veteran who worked on some of their biggest films including up Finding Nemo, Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., Cars, and so many others. He began as an animator, but most of his career at Pixar was in the key role of story supervisor. He now spends his time as a branding consultant, a creative writing instructor, and a workshop leader. When I first heard about Matthew and the work he was doing, I knew that we had to get him to story. At Story 2017, he not only gave an incredible talk from the main stage, but he also led a full-day pre-conference workshop on the art of storytelling on the Wednesday before the conference began. I got to learn a lot from him over the course of those two days and couldn't wait to dive deeper
0: into his creative journey. My dad and my mom and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, they all ran our family toy store. Jeffrey's Toys. We had like the most toy stores in San Francisco. Uh, But my dad, his real dream is he wanted to be a Disney animator. It's what he wanted to do ever since he was a kid. And although he didn't get to pursue that, when I came along as, you know, a three-year-old starting to draw, he was like, you will live my dream. (laughs) You are going to be that Disney animator. So my dad... I grew up in a very unique situation where my dad saw that me watching movies and reading comic books was more important than going to school. And so I was surrounded with a lot of great stories. I would not say they were all appropriate for an elementary school kid, like going to Poltergeist, you know, (laughs) when I was, I don't know, seven or something. But I was surrounded by not just films and comics and stuff uh, that had great storytelling, but I also was just surrounded by people who were really good storytellers. My grandparents, my parents, my uncle, they were just really good storytellers. You know, they had a really good delivery. Yeah, they told the same jokes and the same stories over and over again. But I think they did it because they had honed it so well that they know when to get a laugh and when to get someone emotionally choked up. And even though I ended up going and pursuing animation after high school and working on The Simpsons as an animator when I was 19, it was when I saw the story team working at The Simpsons that it was the first time where I was like, whoa, you could actually make a living writing stories. Even though I thought, wow, I don't know if, I, if, if I'll ever be able to do that. That was when that spark came in my head where that's what I want to do. You were working at Simpsons, and what were you doing exactly? I was an animator. Okay. So I worked as an animator on the third season of The Simpsons, and, um, you know, you basically get handed the script, you get handed the storyboards, the visual uh, story, mm-hmm. and you also, this is this is this was a while ago, you would also get a cassette tape with all of the um, dialogue that the voice actors have read through. Was um, it kind of a scratch
1: track? Or was yeah. It, it wasn't polished at that no, point? No,
0: it wasn't. It was they just put the, you know, a tape player in the middle of the table, and they had a script kind of session, table sure. reading. So you can, when you're animating the characters, you read the script, you see the visuals and the storyboards, and then you hear the, you know, the uniqueness and uh, of the dialogue. So then you can animate the characters effectively. And, dude, it was like a dream job, right? Living in Hollywood, animating on the most popular, for sure the most popular animated TV show, but also um, a TV show that was up there in in the ratings as well. It was like a, it was a dream. Totally. You know? What do you feel like you learned the most while working on The Simpsons? Well, I learned, uh, like I mentioned first, that what interested me the most about all those movies I saw with my dad as a kid animated and live action was not necessarily that the animation part's what I wanted to do, like what my dad wanted to do. It was the writing part. It was the story part. That was the part, the problem-solving part, the big picture. That's the part that interested me the most. I also learned after working on The Simpsons, after someone was shot right outside the front door of The Simpsons one day, that I don't know if I want to live in LA for the rest of my life. Uh, And... As someone who is from the San Francisco Bay Area, I was like, even though there's no film studios there, there's got to be a way I can get back there one day. And
1: it's not like you're there thinking like, oh, I want to go work for Pixar because Pixar wasn't a thing yet. No, no.
0: You know, Pixar uh, at the time was uh, making – they were doing all kinds of random stuff. They were making commercials. So, like, for Listerine mouthwash, for candy, like, gummy savers. And they were even, um, had a, some technology that would allow you to be able to have, like, three-dimensional x-rays when you went to the doctor. And and to pay, be able to pay the bills, they sold their RenderMan products, which helped companies be able to make shiny, twirling logos for their companies. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Pixar was. And... That's about when I came into the company as one of the the first 12 animators on Toy Story.
1: So you came in officially early on as an animator. I did. Not as a story guy.
0: No, no. You know, I managed to uh, make, you know, the leap to say I'm leaving LA, I'm going back home to the Bay Area, and I'm going to take a chance with this unknown company with this potential that this film would work out. And I won't lie, I thought that I was I was going to be able to be in the story department <laughs> but I ended up animating um on Toy Story which then led to me being in the story department and being a part of the development and writing process on Toy Story 2. So
1: they were like this kid's got more to offer than just drawing
0: some toys. Yeah, you know, and I think I was also the the squeaky wheel and I would go in and I would Ask a lot of questions, and I would help out with whatever deadlines they had. You know, like on Friday at 6 (laughs) p.m. And um, and I think you know, every time I put together my own kind of children's book, or I was working on a project, I would show show them these things. And the director of Toy Story 2, he said, "We we need some story people, and I I think you'd be a good fit." So thank God he did, because that that turned into. 20 years working at Pixar uh, on nine films as a story person with the development and the writing and all that. So it was great. One of my favorite parts of this
1: podcast is getting to learn from all these successful artists about how they bounced back from their failures. They kept working towards their goal, no matter what pushed them down. And while their big breaks may not have happened in their timing, they all eventually came around. I was excited to learn about what that transition from animator to writer looked like for him and his career.
0: Well, you definitely have to, um, when you are in the executing part of making something, you're animating, you're acting, you're filming, you know, you're sculpting something, you kind of go into a different mindset from when you're in pre-production when you are actually writing and you're plotting out your story and you're doing the the rough sketches of what your sculpture is going to look like. It's kind of like this planning part, and then there's the doing part. And I have to kind of put on a different hat when I do those things. Um, the execution part is more like I know what I need to do now to be able to to get this up on the screen so people can see it. It's just kind of two different ways of thinking.
1: Yeah. Was there someone that mentored you in that process?
0: Cuz obviously I guess you were yeah. at CalArts for animation. Yeah, I went to CalArts for animation um when I there's been a you know a couple people along the way. I would have to say though that the person that um, I learned the most from when it came to story was um my story mentor Joe Ramth. And for most of us, you know, I say that name and you guys don't know who he is, but If I said he's the voice of Heimlich in Bug's Life, you know, the caterpillars, like, oh, I'm so hungry. (laughs) And he was the voice of Wheezy, the little, you know, penguin in Toy Story 2. You know, he's like, oh, Woody, my squeaker is broken. He did a bunch of voices for characters. But he was also the guy who had a big part of the storytelling style of Pixar and how he was one of the um, the 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 people who ended up making storytelling great again for animated films. Worked on Nightmare Before Christmas, you know, Beauty and the Beast, and he was the guy through my years at Pixar that basically taught me about visual storytelling and writing and creating characters. I, that's the guy I learned from. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. You said uh, you said a
1: phrase. You said the, the Pixar style of storytelling. Yes, talk about that.
0: Well, I would say that, as we know, before Pixar came about, the company that kind of monopolized <laughs> animated films was Disney, and most of those films at the time were a princess and a prince, a in a happy fairy tale village with a, with a musical number, a character singing their "I Want" song or a part of my world, <laughs> and that was starting to wear thin on people right they're good movies but it was starting to hit a formula that people were tired of and also um the the pixar style of storytelling it kind of aged up the audience not in a bad way but what i mean is it started creating stories that weren't just touching and uh entertaining and and inspiring kids it was inspiring and entertaining everybody all ages and going this route of saying we are going to uh not do what's been done in animation before but we're going to do something different definitely people in the entertainment industry thought this was going to bomb but that style of storytelling we did was if you if you ever notice Almost all the characters in those Pixar films are like in their 20s or 30s, and they're dealing with real-life problems that we all deal with, but those characters just happen to be toys and fish and rats and cars and robots, something that's appealing and funny-looking to kids and adults, but the characters are dealing with real-life problems, it, they're, it's not watered down. It's like they're dealing with universal themes and issues like the fear of abandonment or, you know, coming of age or coming of old age in the movie Up. Um, everything from, guys, you know, like we were talking about, you know, fear and desire, yeah. you know. And those universal themes, whether they are a cartoon toy or car or fish or if they're real people they connect with us totally and that was the you know that's for especially those first kind of like 14 movies was that pixar kind of style you know of storytelling
1: There was a meme going around for a while. I'm sure you saw it. This is like (laughs) a movie about feelings of feelings. feelings. (laughs) Yeah. Bugs have feelings. Robots have feelings. And the last one was feelings have feelings. Yeah. For inside out. (laughs) It's it's funny, but you know, there's some truth to that, I guess. Yeah. You're you're taking things that typically would not have emotion. um, And you're allowing those things to resonate on an emotional level with, with, because we take things that are typically objects and you, you give them emotion. Yeah. Um, You give them a heart and a soul and a mind and conflict and drama and that's why they're resonating. What does that say about stories?
0: Well, you know, good storytelling is it comes from truth. There's something personal, there's something authentic. An artist, a writer, a singer, a sculptor, a dancer, the best ones are ones that are being vulnerable with the audience. They're they're saying, "Here I am. Here's my fears, here's my desires." And they're being open and honest to The listener to the viewer whenever we try to be too clever we end up um, creating things that they don't feel authentic and I think one of the things that's made those Pixar films stand out is yes good storytelling but it's because they've come from a place of truth authenticity they're personal and a lot of times in Hollywood that's not allowed to do the the, uh, the demand is make a movie that'll make money. But I always feel that if you create something great, something that comes from your heart, something that's personal, meaningful to you, when you make something of quality like that, it will make money. But it's got to come from the right place. It's got to come from your heart first. Yeah. You know? And I think that we've seen... That happened with Pixar films and other films at other companies that have really made things that are personal from their heart that that um, touch people's souls.
1: Yeah. You know? One of the most amazing things I've heard about Pixar is just in the early days, I think it was Andrew Stanton that I heard talk about this, um, but I guess something wasn't working with Toy Story, and they were trying to figure out what it was, and a bunch of guys from Disney came in. And, and to Disney from Disney's perspective, the problem was very obvious. There yeah. wasn't a strong enough villain. And there weren't any songs. It's <laughs> yeah. yeah. so like, and if you want to fix this, it's got to have a villain <laughs> and a bunch of music. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I, that, I think that was, I mean, it's hard to say now, but like look, looking back, I guess looking back, it feels like a defining moment for Pixar. Because if you would have caved to that pressure yeah. of that insight from Disney, mm-hmm. every movie you made after that could have been a musical. And somehow it yeah. wasn't. What What was it that allowed you guys to stick to your convictions of making the movie that you wanted to make?
0: Well, you know, I think a big part of it is uh, having a great leader who stands up for the creative people at the company. And, you know, for the most part um, at companies, the um, there's not like a, a a protector or an advocate for the, the creative soul of a company. We had Steve Jobs. You know, Steve had been through uh, having a huge success at a young age creating great things, being a visionary, being innovative, to then getting fired from his own company, right? He was definitely bitter about creativity being snuffed. And then he had this opportunity to make stories with one of the things he loved, which was computers and technology. And the last thing he wanted to do was the same thing Apple did to him, which was snuff out the... uh creative heart of, of what we were doing so whether it's michelangelo getting the opportunity to paint the sistine chapel because the pope is here's the money you can do it or to steve jobs saying you guys create create something great right you need to have advocates people that believe in you uh it also helps if they have a lot of money and um <laughs> uh, because um it's it's hard to make things that, like Steve said, put a dent in the universe. Yeah. Um, and when you look at the great things that have been created in movies and entertainment, to business products, you know, uh, inventions, they happen because they, you know, creative people were allowed to do something that had never been done before. And whether it's an iPhone, right whether it's a fossil fuel free car um, or it's a movie that doesn't have a prince or princess it's those types of products and films that make our world better they change things you know they they have like a it's it's a good disruption
1: I loved getting this insider's perspective as to how and why Pixar and so many of our favorite brands and companies are successful. They're simply given the permission to dream, to think differently and to embrace their curiosity. I wonder how the world would change if every organization would encourage this way of creating. Now that I was inspired, I wanted to dive into some of the nitty gritty details of Matthew's principles of storytelling. At your workshop, you talked a little bit about uh, I think maybe it was a question from the audience that led to this, but you said sometimes too much time and too much money yeah, uh, is not good for your creativity. Maybe talk about that.
0: Yeah. You know, I I remember there was the first time I, I witnessed this was my art teacher um, ended up having us uh, sculpt our own face out of clay, right? Gives us a lump of clay. We're supposed to look in the mirror and sculpt our face. And what he said was, uh, I'm going to Give you, give you guys a week to be able to sculpt that one, your face out of clay, do a bust. And I'll see you in a week. And I remember that whole week, I'm like noodling that thing and perfecting it. And seven days go by and I present it and I'm like very proud of it. And we all did in the class. And he goes, great job. Now your next assignment is you're going to do 10 of those and you only have one week. And you're like, what? No. <laughs> that took me one week to do. How is it possible to do 10? Sure enough, the week went by. I was able to do all 10 without a problem. And I realized that the lesson he was teaching us was that sometimes when you have too much time, you get you, you, you noodle around. You don't, you don't get done as much as you could because of too much time or too much money. So a lot of times, um deadlines. And not having all that money you wish that that you had at your means, it inspires you to have to be scrappy. It inspires you to have to innovate to be able to come up with solutions that you wouldn't have had to do if you had all the money, but it, it creates new uh, solutions that creates new ideas yeah you know? well I think the
1: I think the challenge is the thing I hear often is. There are people who are constantly complaining. They're like, oh, if I only had a bigger budget to work with. Yeah. And the misconception is they look at guys like you and go, well, it's easy for you to say you're a Pixar, you have endless amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. But when I talk to people at massive, successful companies like Pixar, that's actually never the case. I remember yeah. talking to a producer at Cirque du Soleil and someone in the audience was asking them, so, what's it like to have an unlimited budget to be able to create any technology you want to do anything you want in a show? Like we've never created a show on budget; we always have to fight budget constraints. Yeah, and so I think it's just it's an encouragement to people out there that yes, even people like you at Pixar had to work within the constraints yeah. of the time and
0: money. When uh, the whole idea for Raiders Lost Ark—it's one of my favorite movies—when that idea was developed by Steve Spielberg and George Lucas and another writer. They pitched it to uh, Paramount. Paramount said, we love the idea, but George, you're directing it. You made a movie that made more money than than Steve did, and Steve always goes over budget. But George Lucas was like, no, no, no. Steve has got to direct this movie. This is He is more passionate about this than I am. He's got to direct it. They're like, no, nope, not going to happen. He'll go over budget. And so... Steve said, give me your budget. I'll stick to it. And he did. And the way he did it was he ended up storyboarding out, not himself. He had a team storyboarding out the entire film for Raiders Lost Ark from beginning to end, every shot, every pan, everything. And it was his way to be able to test out that film all on paper before they went to shoot it. And he did it totally within budget. And then you flash forward years later to like the crystal skull where he had unlimited budget. Didn't have to do all that pre-development. And we've all seen that movie and that's (laughs) the end of my story. So (laughs) sometimes too much money and too much time can end up letting you noodle around and it it hurts creativity. Yeah. You talked a lot in your workshop today
1: um, just at length about, you know, leaving Pixar and moving on to this next season for you. Yeah,
0: you're making films of your own now. Yep. Yeah. So I'm working on a couple of films that that are passionate to me, things that are that are personal, but they also use characters that are recognizable to us, that um, that are you know can be likable by kids and adults, and it's fun to be able to take what I've learned. Um, At Pixar, at The Simpsons, um, you know, and other companies I've been working at and be able to work with a new story team to be able to uh, bring these films to life. Yeah. So it's fun. And what you've learned along the way is
1: that the companies and brands that you're now working for, all those years of learning how to tell a story via animated film are still working. Yeah. So tell me why that's the
0: case. You know, um, we know that. Stories can uh, teach you something, a lesson, a takeaway. Stories can also um, entertain you, make you laugh, make you cry, make you feel something. But most importantly, stories, they inspire you. They inspire you to look at your own life and change. And I think that's what is going on when you watch a film or when a brand is successfully connecting to their audience. They're inspiring people to want to change to be able to be transformed through the characters the uh the people who have had positive experiences you know through that company through that product or the characters we see changing in a movie it inspires us to change to be transformed and i think that is the 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 magical thing about storytelling is it changes people yeah i agree
1: Two final questions. Sure. One, if you could give any book to every
0: storyteller in the world, what would you give them? I would say that really the first book that I would start off with is The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. And really, The Power of Myth was just an interview that Joseph Campbell um, was doing, and it was led by Bill Moyers. And it was really great because Joseph Campbell, for all those who who don't know him, he was basically um, the guy at the time who probably knew the most about uh, different stories that had been shared through different cultures through the, as long as, as has been recorded. And he's the guy who's found similarities with these stories. They always had a, a hero, a protagonist on a journey, a beginning, middle, and end. And before Joseph Campbell died, um, he did this interview with Bill Moyer and he really shared with Bill what he had learned through his experience of learning about, of collecting these stories around the world and analyzing them and dissecting them and figuring out what they all have in common. And then that interview was put into a book and it's The Power of Myth. And that I feel is the great way to start off with why we have been telling stories to one another since we could verbally share a story.
1: Yeah, So I have a friend. His name is John Booker. He's been on the yeah. podcast before. He's on stage right after you tomorrow. Yeah. He's giving a talk all about that, just yeah. the power of myth. And yeah. Joseph Campbell just does all that stuff, is really genius. Great. And finally, I, it wouldn't surprise me if the answer to this final question is similar to your book recommendation, but okay. uh, there's a lot of people out there listening. You're, that mic is connected to thousands of storytellers okay. who work <laughs> in a variety of mediums. Okay, um, They all dream of having a resume that looks like yours to mm. be able to work on those kind of projects. Um not all of them have those kind of resumes, and so they're they're going, oh, if I could just get inside his
0: head yeah, uh, yeah. and ask him for advice, what would what would you tell them? Well, you know, I think I, I'd give all those people out there the same advice that, that Joseph Campbell uh, gave a lot of people, which is follow your bliss. Whatever it is that you're really passionate about in life, those stories you want to tell, those songs you want to write, those pieces of art you want to create, Follow your bliss, follow your passion, and all those other things will fall into place. Take the chance, like I did, of leaving that protected world of L.A., working on like the number one hit animated TV show to to work on a, a, at a company that was only like 80 people wanting to make the first CG animated film, right? Animating candy logos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> follow your bliss. Follow the things that sometimes feel a little scary. Sometimes you, you don't know if you leap, if you're going to land on anything, but from what I've experienced is that, you know, we only have kind of one time to go around here. Take, take chances, do things that, that you want to do before time's up. (laughs) That's awesome. I think this entire
1: conversation could be summed up in those two words, take chances. It's so much easier said than done, right? But look how it turned out for Matthew and Steve Jobs and everyone else that took a chance on Pixar. You never know if you never try. Thank you for joining us this week on the Story Podcast. Season two is off to an incredible start. Just so you guys know what to expect, each week we'll be releasing a short, bite-sized episode that will serve as a weekly creative tip for your work as a storyteller. Every other week, we'll pile on the inspiration and additional insight and instruction with another conversation just like this one. As always, subscribing and rating this show is so helpful. It's an encouragement to us as we continue to create for you guys and serve you as the story community. Everything we do is created with you and your work in mind, including our membership-only platform, StoryCraft, where we post weekly premium video content and host a monthly interactive video live stream with creative professionals like Matthew. Visit storycraft.co for more information. storycraft.co. I hope to see you there. I am Harris the 3rd and until next time. Thank you so much for listening.